following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. All right, friends, you can make your way back to your seats, please, if you, if you can. You may notice on your seats or around your seats, if you haven't already, when you sat down, there was a book on top of the Bible. The Bibles are there each week, and if you don't have a Bible, that's yours to keep. You're welcome to take that home with you as our gift to you. As another gift, we have um, a copy here of Gentle and Lowly. And if you were with us a year ago, uh, we did a small six-week sermon series, uh, really inspired and based off some of the chapters in this book. I read this book last year, and it was really impactful to me, very moving for me, and a really timely read for myself. And so I was so moved by it that I wanted to preach from some of the scriptures that they uh, Dane Ortland had written about in this book, and really, he's really clear. He's borrowing a lot from uh, from past writers himself, and, and namely uh, the Puritans. And so, this is a is an immensely helpful, practical, but moving book. And so, this is a free gift uh, that many generous Christians have donated to lots of churches around the world. If you don't have a copy already, or just want a couple extra copies, take these, take them home, give them away. They're really great and encouraging for a believer. If you're like me, maybe you've thought often that your sins disappoint Jesus um, and that he is like the older brother who's constantly annoyed by the little annoying brother. Um, And that is not at all how Jesus sees us and views us. He doesn't come to us as an austere Savior, but one whose heart is open for us. And while we should be encouraged to know that God has shown us his heart in Christ, and that Christ's heart moves to the sinners and the sufferers, the ungodly, to the unrighteous, so that he might bring them into the heart of God. We must also know that this is simply one picture of what Jesus is like for us, but um, perhaps, like me, you, you need to hear of God's love and his powerful work in Jesus for you. So that's a free gift for you. Take this home. We have lots of other copies as well, so if you found it really helpful or want to go through this with somebody else, come back and grab another copy in fact, I want to commend to you that you, you find somebody in this church that you can read this with, that you can talk with, and uh, I encourage you to do that. If it's anything uh, as helpful to you as it is for me, then you'll be greatly benefited from it. So that being said, uh, open your Bible, please, to the book of Nehemiah. Following this week, we have one more week in our current study of the historical narratives of the Old Testament. And really, Nehemiah marks the end of the history of Israel proper in the Old Testament. Even when we go and look at Esther next week, really that takes place earlier than some of the events we're reading now. And so where we are in the timeline of Israel's history is really at the end of it in the Old Testament. The rest that we have are prophets and they tell what's going on in the midst of all the things we've studied this month, so, or this summer. So my hope is that as we've worked our, ourselves through the Bible, through the historical narratives, you've gotten a glimpse of the context of what's happening as you're reading the scriptures in the Old Testament now. As you're reading the prophets, you're knowing the context and the situation that they're prophesying, speaking into, in order to encourage, convict, rebuke, admonish God's people. We trace this all the way from Joshua to now Nehemiah. And now remember where we are in the story. Israel was taken into captivity. The southern kingdom of Judah was put into Babylonian captivity. And in 70 years, they dwelled there and now were officially allowed to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to resettle the land, and to reestablish themselves as a people. 
And that has been a picture of God's faithfulness. And that was the theme of our series all summer, was God's faithfulness from generation to generation. That God is showing himself to be faithful no matter what the circumstances of the trials, even the discipline and the correction he brings on his own people. God is faithful and loving. He doesn't abandon his promises. He doesn't abandon his people. But he cares for them, loves them, even if he disciplines them. So Nehemiah picks up in the same theme last week we studied in the book of Ezra. This is the now post-exilic community, those who are now freely freed from exile, returning to Jerusalem to rebuild and to reintegrate themselves back into the land so that they could be what God had intended them to be. Nehemiah and Ezra are contemporaries. In fact, we see here in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 8 and 9, Ezra playing a key role as the scribe and the priest of God's people as the laws being read. And when we think about Nehemiah, we think about the wall, right? We think about what was needed to complete the reinstitution of this nation and this people, this community. So Rebbebel led the first wave of exiles back into Jerusalem, and they built the temple. And then Ezra came, and Ezra oversaw the worship in that temple, the right and proper worship according to God's law. And now Nehemiah comes so that the wall around Jerusalem would be rebuilt, and so there would be security. And so let's just turn our attention now to Nehemiah chapter 1 in the first few verses to see the context that we pick up where Nehemiah begins. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chizev, the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. He's wondering about the report. How's it going? And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you've commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So what's happening in the first chapter? Nehemiah gets a report from trusted friends, brothers, he calls them, that have come from Judah. And the report is not good. The temple has been built, praise God, and there seems to be some worship happening in the temple led by guys like Ezra. But 
the temple gates, the, the gates around Jerusalem, the walls are in dismay. It says in verse 3, the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, you and I don't think much about city walls. Most of our cities don't have walls any longer. And even our borders are not protected on all sides by walls. We have some oceans, we have some barriers, but largely most of our borders around our nations or even our cities are not fortified as they were by walls. This may lead us to think that this is something small, something insignificant, but just consider how important walls would have been to a small number of people that needed to protect themselves in the middle of the desert. But any band of marauders could come in, could wreak havoc, it could kill, steal, and destroy at will, especially among a new population that was small in number. Remember, there was about 50,000 people in the first wave compared to the many hundreds of thousands, even upwards of a million or more that existed before the exile. So there's a few small remnant of people in Jerusalem that needed protecting. And even over the course of their building the temple and reinstituting the worship there at the temple, they had opposition all along the way. And so the report came to Nehemiah that the wall was not able to protect them. This very important wall. Now, this wasn't a political thing, not simply to protect who they are as a people so that they could have great political success and power, but to protect themselves from the enemy of God. Those inhabitants of the land around them, the foreigners and the Gentiles, who in times past had corrupted the pure worship and the people of Israel. So this wasn't so much just from the enemy and protection from death, but also for the sake of purity. There were both political reasons but also theological reasons to keep people out so the worship would remain pure. Now, this doesn't mean that nobody was allowed into Jerusalem at the time the walls were built. In fact, many foreigners were allowed, and the temple's purpose in many ways was to allow foreigners and worshipers to come and worship the God of, of the Jews, rightly. And so many would be welcome there to worship at the temple. And yet there were those with false motives and insincere motives and pure motives that would seek to defile God's people. And so walls both represented a political reality and a theological one as well. So Nehemiah, he laments. And so he desires to rebuild once again for the security of God's people. So what does it say at the end of chapter 1? Now I was a cupbearer to the king. A cupbearer was an important trusted role in the sense that he not only drank and ate the king's food before the king did to make sure it wasn't poisoned, but he also was a trusted advisor and a comforter to the king in many ways. So Nehemiah was a powerful man in a powerful position who loved his city and yet served the king. And so in chapter 2 we read, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of the king of Artaxerxes, king Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. 
And the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if it pleases you, please, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, how long will we be gone, and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given of me, given to me uh, for the governors of the province beyond the river that they may know and let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city, for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted of me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So we see just in this two chapters, in the beginning of Nehemiah, the sovereign hand of the Lord on Nehemiah, as he had been on Ezra, Zerubbabel, and all those past. That God was moving still behind the scenes through many ways to produce his good purposes and outcomes. When the first seven chapters of Nehemiah, we get really the first act, which is one of renewal. That is, we've seen that in chapters 1 and 2, Nehemiah is praying and begins to plan to get back to Jerusalem to rebuild and fortify the city. And then in chapters 3 through 6, that's just what they do. The people gather and they build. And notice that it is all the people that builds the temple. In chapter 3, we see that when Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, they built the sheep gate. They consecrated and set its doors. They consecrated the tower as, as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of the Hanel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachor, the son of Imri, built. And on and on and on. This wasn't a handful of men tasked with building the wall, but all of the people in Jerusalem at that time came together to build the wall. It's a great moment of unity and togetherness of God's people. And so in chapter 3, the gates are built, each gate around the wall of the city. They begin to build those first. That's how those would come in and out. In chapter 4, we begin to see our first bit of opposition to the rebuilding of the wall and of the gates. Many are coming against them, and they try in various ways to mock them, to jeer at them. But Nehemiah and his leadership holds fast and commends the people to continue to work. And so it does. In chapter 5, the attention is turned to vindicating the poor. There are some who are being taxed too heavily, and there is not generosity among the people. And so the idea here is that Nehemiah, in his justice and his desire to lead the people, not only to have fortified walls but fortified hearts, leads the people to vindicate the poor, to give and to relieve the poor of their own suffering. And so we see that in chapter 5, and in chapter 6, the wall ultimately is completed despite ongoing Opposition. There's conspiracies against Nehemiah happening, but the wall com is completed through Nehemiah's leadership, and all people work together. And lastly, we see in chapter 7 that the community together is restored. After the wall is finished, we see a list of returned exiles all together, where they are gathered together to celebrate and to see what the Lord has done. So these first seven verse chapters really show us that there is renewal in the air, that God has brought his people back into the promised land so that he may renew them as a people of God. They had lost, in some sense, their identity. 
as they were taken captive by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians. And they are brought back into the land and reminded again of their identity and God's covenant faithfulness so that they may be again renewed as God's people. After renewal, though, comes revival. And really the heart of this book is in this section, chapters 8 through most of 12. We have, firstly, in chapter 8, a celebration. And this is when Ezra comes back on the scene that we saw last week. And he reads the law to all the people. And they celebrate the reading of the law. And they are taught and instructed by the priests and the Levites in the law. Notice what it says in verse 1 of chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Matanathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Pediah, Mishael, Mac, this is, this is difficult for me as it is for you, I'm sure, Hashem, Hashbadiah, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why we stand together as we read God's word at the beginning. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Again, another one of the reasons why we read and respond together. Lifting their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Jeshua, Beni, Sherebiah, Jehim, Akub, Sabathai, Hodiah, Matthiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. And they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So notice what's happening here. The book of the law is opened. Ezra the priest comes. This is a law that was, in many ways, lost to the people for ages. And it's opened once again, and all the people are gathered around Ezra. Notice he doesn't call them to himself. They gather willingly and voluntarily, all those who could hear and understand, and they sat under the listening and the reading and the teaching of God's word. And this wasn't done by any one particular person, not simply by Nehemiah or Ezra, but by the people, as they were instructed by the Levites and those who were teachers of the law. There's a celebration that takes place because the law had been opened and they understood it. Notice what it says again in verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the word of the law. And they said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions to make great rejoicing. Why? Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. There was great rejoicing when clarity of God's word comes to God's people. For many, many years, thousands of years, God's word laid shroud in darkness under teachers who would not teach the law. Under the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church, who distorted the teaching of God's word, added to it and took from it, and would not teach it in the sight of the people as they would gather for Mass on the Lord's Day. In fact, this was intentional so that they could twist God's word into accepting bribes and indulgences. And it wasn't until, by God's grace, the Reformation, that the Lord raised men and women to spearhead the movement of gospel clarity, to recover that was which was being lost. And the beautiful picture of the Reformation is not simply that we have this new set of doctrine that we can talk to and ascribe about, but actually about the clarity of God's word coming to God's people, not hidden behind another language or in text that people couldn't read, but plainly spoken in their language. One of the unique things we understand is that this is happening in their own language so that they could understand it. And great rejoicing happened because they understood the words that were declared to them. May that be the case even in our own homes and in our churches, that when the book of the law is opened before us, it is plainly taught and clearly articulated so that there is great rejoicing and celebration. And that's what happens. We see the Feast of Booths that's celebrated and much rejoicing and celebration happens. In chapter 9, however, the, the theme sort of changes from celebration to confession. We see in chapter, two, chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, that the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day, and for another quarter of it they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Let me just say, sometimes I preach for an hour. Be glad I don't preach for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of the day, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Now, this isn't the solemn uh, uh, worship or the solemn mourning or weeping that Nehemiah said, don't go and do, go and celebrate. This actually is the right response to the acknowledgement that God is gracious, that his word is good. And as they continue to read and hear and understand God's word, they rightly went from praising God, giving thanks to God, to confessing their sins before a holy God being grateful for his grace and his mercy despite their sins. So in 8, we have celebration. In 9, we have confession. At the end of chapter 9 and chapter 10, we have this covenant renewal. As revival breaks in through God's people, we move from celebration to confession to covenant. And God's people now are consecrated once again in the temple. So covenant is made from verses 38 to chapter 10 of 39. And we see this, this picture of all the leaders of Israel coming together to making vows and commitments with one another to live rightly according to the law of the Lord. That they would own it and their identity would be rooted in it. And all the people also would come together and also make this commitment. And so they set their seals on it in chapter 10 and they agreed to it there at the end of chapter 10. And they made a covenant with God to do according to his word. Each family 
in God's place. And in chapters 11 through 12, they consecrate themselves. And notice in the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1, Jerusalem is now called the holy city. In chapter 12, verse 1, there is the holy city of the Lord. May have got my reference wrong there. Far be it for me to get my references wrong here, but the, the Jerusalem is called the holy city moving forward. And as well, in chapters 12, verses 17 through 43, we have this dedication of the temple with thankfulness. In fact, let's turn there and read it. It's 227, excuse me. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem and to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the, the Netophathites, also from the Beth Gagal and from the region of Geba and Asmoreth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. And then I brought the leaders of Judah up into the wall, that is, onto the wall, and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south of the wall, to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah and Ezra and Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests, sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mathaniah, son of Micah, son of Zachor, son of Asaph, and his relatives. And Ezra and the scribe went before them, verse 37, and the fountain gate, at the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David as the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. And the other choir of those who went and gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people of the wall, above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall, and to the gate of Ephraim, by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate and the tower of Hanel, and the tower of the hundred and the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. And so both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests, Eliakim, Messiah, Minanim, Machiah, Elanoi, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Masaiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehonaim, Malachiah, Alam, and Azar, and all the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. And the women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Special attention is to be paid there at the end of verse 43, the repetition of the word joy. They rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy, and the children and the women rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. This is the consecration of this temple as they gathered around to sing praises to God around the holy city with thankfulness and with joy. This is the revival that has swept through now this new nation in the holy city. This would be well and good if the book of Nehemiah left off here, but unfortunately, Nehemiah still has some 
reforms to make. He leaves for a time to go back to the king, and he gets a report of what's happening as he comes back, and there's much still to do and to reform. And so the end of the book, chapters 12 through 13, tell us about the purification needed of the temple, that the certain rooms of the temple were not being used rightly. That's verses 1 through 9. The Sabbath was not being kept rightly. In fact, many people were working on the Sabbath, and so that needed to be purified and set straight. As with Ezra, there were marriages among the people with foreigners and Gentiles that were not to be permitted, and that needed to be corrected. And also priests and the Levites, verses 30 31, also needed to be purified from their sins. And so Ezra and Nehemiah make these reforms among God's people so that they could make themselves right before the Lord in the worship of God's people in God's place. So that's generally the larger outline. Let me just think of a couple applications we can make as we consider the storyline here in Nehemiah. Remember that the, the, the central uh, activity in, in the book of Nehemiah is the building of the wall and then the worship of God's people at God's, in God's temple because of the wall being erected. When we think about the wall, we think about security. We think about what God is meaning to do to protect and to secure his people. And so as we think about what's happening in Nehemiah, we can consider as Christians the source of our own true security. What is the Christian source of security? We first note that the Christian source of security is found in the inclination of God, that God inclines his ear to those who pray. That is, we pray and God hears. God is inclined to us. We have in chapter 1, petition. He says in verse 4, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down, I wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ears be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. God's inclined himself to his people, his eyes are open, his ears are open to the plight and to the prayers and to the petition of his people. There's great comfort and security knowing that God's desire is to hear the prayers of his people and to answer them. How much more can we find security anywhere else but only in the, in the inclination of God towards his people? But it's not just petition, which is the right form of prayer, but also confession. In chapter 9, there's this long confession of God's people that, that they make on behalf of all the sins that they've done and worshiped the Lord after they've read God's law. And both petition and confession are necessary elements of our prayers when we come before the Lord. And we rest no more securely than when we recognize God is holy and we confess our sins. And when we come to God as the only true source of our help in our trouble in times of need. The fact that we have a God who is inclined to answer prayer is a source of great security for you and I. What do you fret? What have you to worry? What does Jesus say? Do not be anxious about anything. But your Father in heaven knows what you need and will deliver these things to you. Even the evil father gives good gifts to his children. How much more would our Father in heaven give good gifts to his children? The source of security is that we can come to God who hears us when we pray, who answers us 
according to his will. He allows us to repent, confess our sin, and ask of him all that we need. The second source of security we see pictured here or demonstrated in the book of Nehemiah is the sovereignty of God. We've made much of the sovereignty of God over the last several weeks, and there's no difference here. The sovereignty of God plays a crucial role in what's happening in the book of Nehemiah. But the Christian source of security rests not only in the inclination of God, but also in the power and in the sovereignty of God. That is, the good hand of the Lord is with us. Look in chapter 2, verse 8. What does Nehemiah say about his success with the king, Artaxerxes? He says, He granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. He says this also in verse 18 of the same chapter. He told them, those who he recruits to come with him, he told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. Notice the order there. The hand of my God was upon me for good and the king also gave me permission. Notice is what's more important. God's hand was on him, led to his success. That is, God sovereignly, powerfully, and creatively moved in the heart of Artaxerxes and presumably the queen who sat beside him to allow this return. Now, remember, this had come as a reversal because the king had said no. They, th- they thought that, that Israel was going to usurp power again and be uh, rebellious. And we saw in Ezra that obviously Artaxerxes would reverse that. But this happened because God moved in his heart and honor the request that Nehemiah would make. So we see then at the sovereignty of God, that the good hand of our God is always with us. Again, another source of security for God's people. Not only do we have a prayer hearing God, but he can act and he can do what we pray for. He can do all things, as Paul says, beyond what we could ask or think, because he is sovereign. He has the authority to do it, and he has the power to make it happen. So notice then firstly under this that the Lord acts. God is sovereign over all things. He creates all things, and as creator, he has authority over all things. He acts. He is sovereign over the universe. The Lord is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Secondly, though, the Lord's acts are good. They are good things. They're not purposeless or bad or certainly evil. They are good. He works for good. His acts are good. That is, his purposes, his intentions are all perfect. They are all right. They are all just. They are without sin or blemish. They are good. And thirdly, the Lord acts for our good. Even his discipline, correction, and admonishment is for our good. And so in his sovereign ability to orchestrate and ordain all things that come to pass, we can be sure, we can have security in the fact that our sovereign God does so for our good. And those purposes are perfect, wise, just, and righteous. And so we can take security in that truth. Thirdly, the Christian's source of security comes from the word of God. Not only from the inclination of God, and the sovereignty of God, but we find security in the word of God. Again, we read in chapter 8 just how powerfully effective the word of God, when opened and received by God's people, is. 
the responses demonstrate the kind of heart change that takes place when God moves among his people according to his word. And this is the public ministry of God's word. One of the reasons why we spend time when we gather to study God's word together is because we believe what happens here in Nehemiah happens here in our church foundation. That can happen anytime the Bible is open and taught clearly and instruction is given and the sense of it is made by the people who can hear it and understand it. That's the public ministry of the word, but there is a domestic ministry of the word as well, or a private ministry, if you'd like. Just recall in Exodus chapter 12, Moses says, when speaking of the Passover, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, and when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. So the people would bow their heads and worship. Notice he's saying, Teach your children about what the Passover means. That's in the home. It wasn't a priest's job. It was the parent's job. Again, more generally, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, the law says to take care and to keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. So we have the public ministry of the word as we, we come together on, day, on days like this, on Wednesday nights, to discuss, to read, to pray, and to sit under the instruction of God's word. But we also have in our homes and in our private domestic relationships where we are teaching and instructing one another. The word of God is powerful. What does Hebrews 4 tell us? It's alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the bone and to marrow. It teaches us about all the promises and the truthfulness of God. It teaches us ultimately about Christ, our Savior. And so we have real security in the powering, powerful work of God through his word. As it's preached on Sunday, as it's read aloud, affirmed here from the pulpit and in the pew, and in our homes as we share and read with one another, husbands, wives, children, neighbors. The word of God brings security to his people, for it tells us how we should live. It gives us the joy. It gives us the hope. It gives us the way to live. Fourthly, the Christian source of hope is found in the joy of God itself. The joy of God. Again, at the end of chapter 8, or actually in the middle of chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, we see that there was great joy at the reading of God's word. This is, again, attached to, closely related to the reading and the celebration of God's word. But God gives them their joy. It is the joy of God itself. So in 8 verses 9 and 10, he says, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the Lord. So Nehemiah said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So this is joy that the Lord has given his own joy that he dispenses to his people. Well, what kind of joy do we mean? Well, it's joy in being known by God and in knowing God. They have come to know God clearly because the law was taught clearly. They understood the law and the word to teach about God, his holiness, his righteousness, his faithfulness, his graciousness, and all things in between. They know God, and so they rejoice with the joy of God. But they also rejoice in being known by God that God has made himself known 
and in so has known his people. He as their creator knows them in and out and welcomes them into his presence with singing and thanksgiving and worship and great joy is produced. There's security not only in the reading and the instruction of God's word, but in the joy of God itself, knowing that we have great security because God has given us joy, his own joy, to sustain us in our worship, to sustain us in our faith. The joy of the Lord is our strength, it says. Not our own joy, not our own strength, but the joy of the Lord would be our strength. Security for the Christian also comes from the promises of God. That was what was contained in God's law, not only the ways that they must live, but also the promises of God's faithfulness. These covenant promises made to God's people over and over again. Those promises become the bedrock of our growing faith in Christ, in his death and his resurrection. When we trust in these promises, we become secure, more deeply and rooted, more strongly in our faith and our trust in the Lord himself. The picture of this comes from Romans chapter 4, as Paul looks to Abraham. And he says about Abraham and the promise that was made to him, that he would be a father of a multitude, that he, he would have a son. He said that he hoped, in hope, he believed against hope. This is Romans 4, verses 18 to 25. He hoped against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had, to, had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Christ from the dead, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So the promises of God, much like for Abraham, was really the source of the trust that he saw and he believed. It was because he knew that God was able to make good on his promises. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And so that faith, that trust in the promises of God and the faithfulness of God to, to answer and fulfill his promises is what made Abraham righteous. Not any of his deeds or his words or his goodness, but his faith and faith alone. And that's the same for us. The promises of God are actually the source of our security because as we believe them, trust them, and hope in the faithfulness of God, we are secured from condemnation. We are secured from evil and sin that would come to overtake us. We are secured from the wrath of God that would come against unrighteousness. We are secured because the promises of God give us a greater hope to stand on. Christ and his resurrection. Indeed, that's the greatest of all our securities. Lastly, the Son of God is the Christian's true source of security. Just think about those we've mentioned so far already. Prayer, sovereignty, the word, joy, and promises. Well, notice how Christ fulfills all of these things and more. Jesus is the Christian's means of answered prayer. What does he teach us to do? To pray and ask in his name. 
It is to the Father, we pray, in the name of the Son, in the power of the Spirit. The means by which we have our prayers answered and heard is because Christ has made us righteous that we may come to Christ. Hebrews tells us that we have a great high priest who intercedes for us. And therefore, we should have boldness and confidence to approach the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. Jesus is the Christian's means of answered prayer. He's also the realization of the eternal purposes of God in his sovereign acts and out history, in whom all things work together for those who love him and are united to him by faith. Romans 8 will tell us that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So God's sovereignty acts in a way that fulfills all the purposes he has in the glorification of Jesus and those who are united to Jesus sees the perfect eternal purposes set forth in him. It's Ephesians chapter 2 and 3. In Jesus, we also see the incarnate word of God. The apostle John tells us this in chapters 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the word of God. That is, the Father's own self-disclosure and revelation to his people. When we want to know the Father, Jesus says, you can see me. To know him, to know me is to know him. He is the word of God. All the fullness of deity dwelt in him. He's the exact imprint in the nature of God. He is God in the flesh. Jesus is the fount of joy and comfort for all of God's people. He sends his spirit to remind us of the work and the person that Jesus is and has done for our good and for our comfort which leads to joy. And as always, he fulfills all the promises of God, and they all find their yes and amen in him. And so, as one Puritan has put it, Jesus is the refuge and the safety for all of God's people in the coming judgment. The Gospel of Matthew, verse 24, reads this. Jesus says, For as the days of Noah, so will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And then they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. And so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. This warning is the coming judgment. And Jesus says that there will be a judgment and a condemnation that will come. And the only hope will be to find themselves with Noah on the ark. Well, as the Puritans put it, Jesus is an ark for all of God's Noahs. That he has called us righteous because of Jesus' righteousness so that we may be safe and find refuge when the flood may come. When the difficulties come, Jesus becomes our true source of safety and refuge and security. He is the wall by which we hide. He is the temple by which we worship. He is the ark on which we are saved and are sustained in the flood. He is the whale that swallows us and keeps us safe as we sin against the Lord. He is faithful. He is the refuge and the safety for all of God's people. The book of Nehemiah simply shows us that what God is doing among the midst of those people, he is doing among the midst of us now, and that he has put forward Jesus, his son, as the means by which we are to worship, be thankful, and find true joy and true and lasting security. Let's pray. Father, there's much more to be said. 
many stones left unturned. But may we find true joy because we have been built as a people, a nation, a holy nation, a priesthood of believers who have been given your word to dwell on it, meditate on it, to hear it, be instructed by it, and to live it out. And may we be led, God, to find our security not in the things of this world, not in the things we produce with our hands, but in Christ and Christ alone and in your faithfulness to keep us safe, to correct us, to sustain us, to guide us and to lead us. Lord, we are thankful for these things and much more we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Recent sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no-derivative 3.0 license. If you'd like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.